Welcome to ROH Strong Podcast. Here is your host, Kevin Eck. What's up, Honor Nation? Welcome to episode 69 of the ROH Strong Podcast, the official podcast of Ring of Honor Wrestling. Now, I have a very special guest today. He holds the distinction of being the only person to ring announce for the WWF, WWF, NWA, WCW, AWA, and not all that long ago, AEW. He also served as a backstage interviewer for Ring of Honor during the early years of the company. It is my absolute honor and privilege to introduce the world's most dangerous announcer, Gary Capetta. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Listen, to be on this podcast, I don't need to be honorable, do I? (laughs) (laughs) I may get eliminated right off the bat. (laughs) No, but we've known each other for a little bit over the years, and I I find you to be a very honorable person, Gary. So I think think if you had to be honorable, be on this show, you would fit that qualification, in my opinion. Uh, Okay, then we're we're set. (laughs) Well, I know that uh, for most of your career as a ring announcer, you were Gary Michael Capetta. Have you dropped the Michael? I, I noticed on your social media and such, you're just Gary Capetta now. Did, so is Michael, has that been dropped? No, no, it's Gary Michael Capetta. Um, it's the, it, the reason for that is because when I started those social media accounts, they were uh, personal. Okay. But I found out that real quick that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, just keep it personal. Right. So they turned into uh, memorabilia kind of... Um, especially my Facebook page and my Twitter page too. Um, on Facebook, it is Gary Michael Capetta. Twitter, it's Gary Capetta. Instagram, it's Gary Capetta. Um, you know, but like, the, for instance, the Facebook page has grown to more than um, one and a half million um, people touch base with that page every month. Wow. So it's, it's grown. You know, it's become a hobby for me, really. Wow. One and a half, I'll say. One and a half million. That is, uh, that's quite a reach. Well, Gary, I'm sure you've heard this many, many times, uh, but you were, and I hope this doesn't embarrass you, but you were one of the voices of my childhood. Uh, there's no question about that. I grew up in Baltimore watching WWWF All-Star Wrestling on Channel 20 in Washington every Saturday at 11 a.m. And then I would watch Championship Wrestling, another WWWF uh, show, Channel 45 in Baltimore on Saturday afternoons at 4 p.m. This was every Saturday of my life for years and years and years. You were the ring announcer for All-Star Wrestling. A gentleman named Joe McHugh was the ring announcer for Championship Wrestling. And you guys had very, very distinct styles, but very different styles. For one thing, I know that you were, I think, in your 20s at that point, um, talking about this, the mid-70s here. Joe had to be in his 60s, I'm guessing. Um, and the, the shows were done at two different venues. One was in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. One was in Allentown, Pennsylvania. My long roundabout question, I guess, there is, did you and Joe McHugh ever cross paths? Did you ever meet? Once, briefly. Um, I guess that um, McMahon Sr. was told or thought that Joe was not going to be able to make the championship wrestling taping. So they booked me for that show and Joe showed up. 
and then there was no reason for me to hang out. So I just said hi to him real uh, briefly in passing. But other than that, um, you know, it's the same question that I get with uh, Howard Finkel. Yeah. Um, I knew Howard, but not in the capacity of ring announce because there was never any reason for there to be two ring announcers at one show. Um, so he would be in one place and I would be in another place. Um, but yet we knew each other, um, especially in the later years that uh, we'd run into each other at conventions. But no, I really didn't know Joe McHugh. Okay. Yeah, like I said, just, you know, for, for a kid growing up, um, those voices for me, uh, again, so distinct and easily imitatable. And, and believe me, my friends and I, when we were young, we would do the whole spiel um, that you did for All-Star Wrestling at the beginning of the show and that Joe did for Championship Wrestling where, you know, you announced the State Athletic Commission and the, the doctors in attendance and the officials. And I, I'm going to actually maybe try to do an imitation of that later on in the show. We'll, we'll see how things go. And that might not be a great imitation, but I'll, I'll try. You know, I have those things committed to memory. You know, well, that'll keep people tuned in. I still remember it to this day. You know, <laughs> the timekeeper at the bell. And it's, uh, it's amazing. I can't remember what I did five minutes ago. You know, I walk into the kitchen. I forget what I came in there for. But I can still remember these things from 1974. Uh, but anyway, let's talk about now let's talk about or 2020 i guess it was uh you did a a little spot for aew tv which i think was a surprise to some people that legendary ring announcer gary michael capetta was on tnt once uh, well i guess you were never actually on tnt in the past um certainly tbs but here you are on aew dynamite how did that opportunity come about um about four days before that live broadcast, um, all of a sudden, um, I started getting messages on my cell, on my home phone, <laughs> on Messenger, online. You know, they were, they were looking for me. And um, I think it was uh, Chris Jericho brainstorm where they were doing the weigh-ins for the Jericho Moxley um, upcoming um, pay-per-view main event and he wanted a big voice to you know bring them to the ring and um yeah i mean i had you know they contacted me four days before and then they lined up my tickets and i was off to kansas city at first i, I tell you the truth at first i declined um because it had been a long time since i had been on a major broadcast um things are so different today technologically um to be thrown in that mix coming from i mean the last time i was on tbs i was like physically wired to the truck like i had a um i had a, a pack on my belt and there was a wire that led down the side of the ring and plugged in you know what i mean so it was like totally different um so I, I didn't think it was a good idea in the sense that um, uh, at first they said, what do we need for you to host a segment? And I said, well, I don't host segments. <laughs> I re-announce, re you know, that's like, so it was out of my skill set and also technologically things were so different. And, and you want to throw me like live on TNT with, you know, in front of what turned out to be like 850,000 people. Uh, you know, I kind of shied away from it at first, but then they said, no, nah. when 
Chris Jericho had forwarded them um, a boxing weigh-in to show me what they were looking for. And when I saw what they meant by hosting the segment, really, they just wanted ring introductions. Right. So uh, I was more comfortable with it. Uh, you know, and then obviously I went and did it, and um, it worked out well. So I'm guessing you probably saw some familiar faces when you showed up that night. Uh, obviously, lots of new faces as well, I'm sure. But what was the experience like backstage as far as meeting maybe some people from your past and then, uh, you know, the new generation? Were, were they familiar with you? What, what was it like? Um, well, they had a, um, a dressing room for the announcers. So obviously I had worked um, for years with Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross in WCW. Uh, I knew Justin Roberts. He actually, on my first book tour in the Midwest, in the summer, I want to say, of 2001, he had contacted me. He was a college kid and asked if he could help me on my book tour. So he spent half of the summer with me um, at county and state fairs and wrestling shows and so forth. So I knew Justin from, from back then, too. Um, it was it was cool. I mean, I, I knew them, and you know that made it a bit comfortable. I didn't hang out a lot with the wrestling talent. Um, I knew Cody. Um, I had spoken um, to the owner on the phone before I went, but I you know I met him when I was there. Um, I, of course, I knew Warren Anderson. Um, he was in our room. I don't know why Dustin Rhodes was in, you know, dressing in our room, but you know, I knew Dustin from the past. So it was, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was as comfortable as it could be considering I didn't know like most of the, the talent and I didn't really interact too much with them. Sure. Well, what else are you up to? Um, I, I know you're active on social media and I, I guess you, um, now that things are opening up a little bit more uh, with the pandemic, although we'll see how things go, I guess, in the next few weeks and months. But I guess you're, you're, you're back out on the, maybe the signings or the, or the convention circuit. Uh, but what else are you up to these days? Well, before the pandemic, I was on the road um, at two different times with my stage show. Um, I took the stage show from up and down the East Coast out to uh, Chicago, Indianapolis, um, down as far as uh, like Tampa, I, one weekend I did Tampa, Orlando, Atlanta, because I would just go out on weekends. Uh, I did Greensboro, Pittsburgh was a real good city for me. Baltimore was a good city for me, um, always has been. By the way, you, know, you, you mentioned you grew up in Baltimore. I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with um, the book Battleground Baltimore. Um, I, yes, I contributed to it. I was interviewed for it. Okay. Um, I had, I wasn't, I had forgotten about it and I wasn't aware of it. And I think I was interviewed for it also. And it, I just saw it recently and I got in touch with Graham and asked him to sign a copy and send it to me. And he did. So I still need to go through it. Um, so anyway, I was on the road with my stage show and then the pandemic hit. And, um, um, last weekend I was 
was my first convention out in, you mentioned Hamburg. It was at the Hamburg Fieldhouse. Um, so that was pretty cool. And how many know, years had it been since you had been in that building? Since uh, 84. Wow. I mean, yeah, the memories must have just come flooding back when you walked through the door. I wanted to, uh, there were two places that I wanted to step into when I was there, and I did it on my way out. One was, uh, they had separate locker rooms in, in Hamburg, one for the good guys, one for the bad guys. And of course, I would always dress with the good guys. And I remembered it as being a, like a very small place, like a very small room. And it was, it had, has like 20 lockers. Um, and one of my vivid memories was, um, remember the, the old stories uh, about Dr. Zahorian? Yes. Um, watching the uh, guys line up in that tiny dressing room as he came in with a cardboard box and it was filled with little white bakery bags <laughs> that uh, were stapled closed. And he would just, you know, simply uh, blood pressure and then give them a bag. Blood pressure and give them a bag. <laughs> so I wanted to see that. And it was as small as I remember. So that was pretty uh, cool. And then I also wanted to go in, in between those two rooms is, is the box office. And I wanted to go into the box office because there was a, an episode that um, I'm asked about sometimes and I wrote about with uh, Vince Sr. Um, now, people need to understand that if you lived in the Northeast, there was the WWF and that was it. If you didn't work for the WWF, you did not work in wrestling. I mean, that there were, there were no independent groups or, or uh, overlapping territories. Didn't happen. Right. Yet as a mid-20-something-year-old, I thought that I deserved a raise. I deserved more money. Um, and it was because I was, uh, I was out for four months uh, with an illness, and I realized how much time I was devoting to, uh, to announcing. So I thought, well, if I'm going to put so much time, you know, into this, I need to get paid more. And I, I think we used to tape three one-hour shows every third week. In Hamburg, it was every Wednesday, third Wednesday. And I think I was getting paid maybe 60 bucks. And I probably was asking for like 100 bucks. And I was going to go in and I was going to ask Vince Sr. for a raise. And I had brainstormed the whole thing. And I was ready for whatever he said to me. Whatever he said, I had to come back, except for what he said, <laughs> which was, you know, like Vince, you know, I think I deserve, you know, I've been with you for like a couple years. And, and he just looked at me and said, well, I can't afford it. <laughs> so what do you say to that? You know, it, it was, um, it was just really weird. So of course I was speechless. But the key to the to the story is that at the and I was I was paid in cash and Phil Zacco would stuff an envelope with your cash in it and um, and then slip it to you <laughs> and it sounds seedy because it was seedy yeah and at the end of the night I got that raise and every taping after that. That extra money was in my sleazy little envelope. 
Wow. And the story, the bottom line is, and it's how um, the McMahons ran things. And um, sometimes some of the stories I hear, I don't know that things have changed that much today, is that they could never tell you that you did a good job. I guess, you know, unless you're one of their headliners, you know, one of their superstars. But to keep you in line so that you wouldn't think about asking for anything extra, it was always best to keep you a little tentative about your job. So no one ever, ever commented on my announcing in my 11 years with the WWF. Just never happened. And um, so he just couldn't say to me, yeah, Gary, I think you deserve it. Wow. But I guess he, and, and he may have just needed to buy some time because I don't think he was used to that question. <laughs> I don't know. I could tell you. Uh, so now it makes sense because, you know, I, I think, you know, Gary, I worked for WWE for three years on the creative team, uh, 2011 to 2014. Um, and I can, so now I get, you know, where Vince must have Vince Jr. must have gotten it from. He must have gotten it from his dad because there definitely was always a sense of uh, everybody's day to day around here. And, and who knows what tomorrow is going to bring as far as your job's concerned. And there always was that feeling of, man, I better walk on eggshells or, you know, that's right. Yeah. There was. And so, uh, so Vince must have gotten that from his father, which I find really interesting because I've always heard the old timers say that, that they were so different that uh, Vince was such a uh, Vince senior was such a nice man, honorable man. And you don't always hear such nice things about Vince jr. Well, um, uh, yeah, on the surface, yes. On the surface, and I get a little annoyed when I hear today, and, and over the last couple decades, after um, Vinny has become, you know, a billionaire and so successful, but, you know, when he started being successful with his WrestleManias, that his, um, I think, out-of-line attitude is always... Um, excused um, like he's treated like he's some kind of untouchable he was uh, probably 30 years old during the story that I just told you about asking for a raise okay. and before he had done anything other than be the boss's son which allowed him to be the commentator he was an arrogant putz so I like I, I just that's who he is, and I, I I will never excuse that kind of um, behavior. Um, and you know, people do say, "Oh, he's a genius," and so that puts him in some kind of a protected category. You know, like he's a protected species or something. <laughs> I I I know him from when he was you know very young. Um, last time I saw him was not too long ago at Bruno San Martino's funeral. Um, let's, people just need to stop. Just because you're successful, it doesn't give you um, a free ticket to treat people like crap. Of course, absolutely. That, that's my point. Anyway, Senior, yes, he was very well-dressed. He was a very refined guy. But when he had dirty work to, to get done, he had someone else do it. Mm. Whereas Junior, he didn't give a damn about what you thought about him. He, you know, carried it out himself and took credit for it. That's the difference. 
So Gary, how much uh, do you still keep up with the business today? How much do you follow? Um, uh, pretty closely. Um, with that which I have um, access to. Um, not all of, believe it or not, I, I don't, I guess unless you are a subscriber, I, I don't have access to uh, a couple of the major promotions. I'm a huge supporter of independent wrestling. So um, maybe every other month I'll get out and see an indie show. And then I'll read about the other um, promotion. So I, I follow it pretty closely. I mean, I keep myself out there on social media. So I'm always getting questioned about things. And also when I do personal appearances um, or guest ring announce kind of things. So uh, I am um, interacting with fans and I need to know what's happening today because they always ask me, you know, opinions about that pretty closely, I'd say. Okay. Well, I want to get into your origin story a little bit. And I know it's something you've talked about many, many times on many, many podcasts as you and I have, uh, we spoke before we started recording today. But for the benefit of those who maybe uh, aren't familiar with your story, who are listening to this today, I just want to, maybe we'll give the Cliff Notes version. Um, and I know that you broke into the business when you were still in college, uh, back in New Jersey is, is, is where you grew up, right? Is that where you attended college as well? Yes. Okay. Uh, but I want to ask before that, though, uh, growing up as a fan, how old were you when you first discovered pro wrestling? At what age? Do you remember? Um, I was probably um, in sixth grade, uh, fifth, sixth grade, um, late one night, um, checking out what was on uh, wrestling in the New York market, which is what uh, I received because uh, I was in North Jersey, um, was only on once a week, Saturday night, midnight. And um, yeah, I discovered... Uh, that's how I discovered it. Just, I thought it was something I shouldn't be watching. I thought a kid shouldn't. <laughs> I thought, I thought it was a little obscene at first, you know? Yeah. And, and back in those days, uh, you know, I, I became a fan in the mid seventies when I was like six years old and uh, my parents were taking me to the Baltimore civic center monthly. You know, this was back when Bruno, this was his second reign as champion. That's how far back it was. Um, and it was definitely, there was a seedy, feeling to it it was an older crowd um and not as not a lot of families and kids like you know you would see years later uh you know dimly lit you know all the cliches smoky arena the family right. kind of rowdy um and it really did feel like this was not necessarily family entertainment but god bless my parents they indulged me and uh you know here we are how many ever years later i'm not going to add them up because it'll just depress me but you know, still a yeah. fan to this day, but my parents could have shut that down early on, you know, especially I had no family support. So as a kid alone, um, watching this, you know, two sweaty guys, scantily clad in a dark <laughs> arena, um, but there's no music, you know, entrance music. No. Um, and, um, yeah. So, and, and then the next week, uh, there were women that were wrestling, you know, and then the next week there were midgets and it was like, I, I don't know what this is. And I'm not, I don't think I should be watching, but man, I'm not going to miss this. This, this yeah. is pretty cool, you know? And there were no like huge events, big signings every week. It was like very low key. And it was also something that when you went to school, 
you didn't brag about being a wrestling fan. If, if you knew that another kid at school was a wrestling fan, it was just coincidental. Yeah. Um, it wasn't basketball. It wasn't baseball. It wasn't football. Like you, you use the word seedy. And I think that's, uh, you know, wrestling and roller derby were seedy. Yep. And uh, you didn't, um, you didn't wear a wrestling t-shirt. Well, they didn't have them, but. They didn't have them, no. You, you didn't spread the word that this is what you were into because you would have been considered a little perverted. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, mentioned perverted. Uh, you mentioned the girls, uh, the women wrestlers as well. I remember they would bring them in as a special attraction every now and then. And, um, and it was nothing but, you know, cat calls and, and, you know, guys whistling at them and, you know, inappropriate comments. And again, here I am six, seven, eight years old, you know, with my mother bringing me to the shows and, and just hearing all this stuff. Then I would buy the mags, you know, the magazines. They later, you know, I later became, uh, they later became known as after mags, wrestler and inside wrestling and all those things. And I don't know if you remember back in the day, Gary, the, the ads, some of the ads in those magazines were for like blow up dolls and, you know, uh, half naked women where it was like a, a book, like how to talk any woman into bed and five easy lessons. I mean, yeah, I mean, on the, on the cover, closely. Uh, on the magazine covers, they had uh, features on apartment wrestling. Yes, apartment house wrestling. And, and back in those days, especially, you always had guys with the, you know, to quote Gordon Soley, the crimson mask. So here you have this magazine with a close-up of a guy with blood all over his face, a little picture in the corner of two women in bikinis, you know, apartment house wrestling massacre, and then the ads inside. Again, thank God my parents did not say, hey, let me see one of those magazines. Let me look inside. You know, I guess the covers were bad. Maybe they didn't want to know, but yeah, those uh, th those were those were the good old days. And um, again, I know I, I know you've told your story many times. I know that it was Gorilla Monsoon who kind of broke you into the business. I'll sort of tell some of your story for you. Is that I know you reached out. You were looking for a job. You didn't want to be a wrestler. You didn't want to be a referee uh, because both involved physicality. I felt the exact same way. As much as I loved the business, I knew pretty early on I probably wasn't tough enough to to step into the ring. Uh, but you reached out for an announcing job, and um, and Gorilla Monsoon, right, is the guy who welcomed you in? Mm, almost. I didn't reach out for an announcing job. I, I was um, I was writing for Ring Wrestling Magazine. Okay. Um, I had uh, gone to New York. I had uh, weaseled a press pass out of them to because uh, I was a senior in college, and... Um, this got me into the matches for free and because uh, I didn't have a whole lot of money. And uh, I was at Wildwood Convention Center one night, end of June week. They had weekly shows there all summer. So Wildwood was a beach community and it grew to hundreds of thousands of people every summer. And the WWWF had weekly wrestling shows there in July and August. Um, but they had one preseason show end of June um, and they did not have a ring announcer and the promoter, the um, well, the promoter was Gorilla Monsoon, but I didn't know that. I just thought he was a wrestler. Willie Gilsenberg, who was then the president of the WWWF was the front man for the promotion. And he would wander up in between the matches to introduce the next one and declare the winner of the one before. And it was slow, it took forever. 
And so I just volunteered. I said, if you want, I'll do that. And um, he said, okay, but you can't get in the ring. I said, uh, not a problem. So I sat at the ringside table. At the end of the night, he asked me, he said, that wasn't too bad, kid. He said, do you have any experience? I lied to him. I said, of course. And then he said, well, come next week and uh, wear a tie and a jacket and we'll put you in the ring. At the end of the summer, I started a teaching job. And um, so the beginning of September, uh, I get a call from my mom because I, I had to move out of the house to move toward closer to where I was teaching. And she said, I have a message for you. And I said, yeah. I remember my parents knew nothing about wrestling. They could care less. And she says to me, do you know somebody by the name of Gorilla? <laughs> and I said, of course I do. <laughs> she said, well, he left a number here and he wants you, know, you to call him. So I said, okay. So uh, I did. And um, he had just started his do promoting his part of the WWF. The, the Vince Senior had three partners and they each received a part of the territory to oversee. And Monsoon's part was New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware. So um, he, uh, so I called him. He told me, he said, would you like to, you know, be my announcer? And I said, I can't. Um, I, you know, I'm just started a teaching job. He said, well, it's at night and it's, it's mostly New Jersey. You can, you can do this. <laughs> so that's how I started. I want to ask you about uh, kayfabe back in those days, because certainly this was, we're talking about the mid seventies. The business was very, very protected as the ring announcer. Were you, did the boys break kayfabe around you or did they maintain it at all times? I know, like you said, the, there was a good guy dressing room and a bad guy dressing room. And the guys weren't supposed to be seen together, but did they smarten you up or like, what, what, what was the situation there? That took a while. Um, um, I was never allowed in the locker room. Okay. Um, they had a separate place for me to change. Usually it was where the medical personnel were set up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, and I don't know what it took to, I get, you know, one night Monsoon just called me in and, um, cause once a month he would give me my bookings for the next month. He had this, this huge, um, um, hardbound date book with every show in the territory and the lineup for each show. So he never wanted me to see it. So he would wrap it around his face. <laughs> Plus he, he, he had poor eyesight. So he needed to, for it to be close if he wasn't wearing glasses to, to be able to read it. And um, so it must've been just one night he called me in and I got the, um, that was a signal that I was allowed in the dressing room. But that took a year and a half, two years before I was allowed in. There are so many names I would love to ask you about, but obviously we're not we, I could literally spend all day asking you about some of the guys I watched on TV. Uh, but there's one, a couple in particular I, I will ask you about. One guy I've always been fascinated with is Captain Lou Albano, just because he was such a character on TV and then, you know, you hear some stories about what Lou was like off camera. Uh, what are your recollections of uh, the late, great Captain Lou? Um, Lou Albano, was a, he was a guy with a, um, from a very traditional Italian family. 
I often thought I'd love to be at Thanksgiving dinner at the Albano household. Um, I don't know, his brother, uh, I think his brother was a surgeon. Um, and, and Lou, he was just a big hearted guy who was the most entertaining when he was drunk. And, um, you know, he liked to tip the bottle. And um, <laughs> he was, he was a, a terrific showman. Um, I, um, I, I had come, when I was with WCW, our paths crossed at the Charlotte airport. And at that time, he was Super Mario. Right. And he, I, at first, I didn't recognize him because there were no, um, you know, there were no earrings. There were no cheek piercings. <laughs> um, you know, and, and then when my book came out, I had a, a huge event um, at, a, um, at a, a high school gymnasium. And I brought in people who were instrumental in, in important things that happened in my career. And Lou was one of them. And he just, you know, he got there very early. Then he left. He uh, came back all wound up because he found his little gin mill. And uh, he was terrific for the rest of the night. You know, I, I interviewed Bruno a couple times years ago, and he was close to Lou, which, again, as a, as a kid growing up, it's like, man, Bruno and Lou, out, like they hated each other, right? But no, he, Bruno basically said that, uh, you know, Lou would act up and Vince Sr. would fire him, and then Bruno would go to Vince Sr. and say, come on, give the guy a break and hire him back, and he would, and that that would happen time and time again. So luckily Lou had Bruno in his corner, I guess, because if anybody's going to go to bat for you and save your job, right, at that point it's Bruno San Martino. That's right, and Lou was lovable. You know, he was, um, he, he was not a problem. It, it actually added to the enjoyment value to watch um, – the coarser side of Lou interact with a very trying to put a respectable front Vinnie Jr. Yeah. You know, the, the, the juxtaposition of the two, um, it was gold. Definitely. But, but Vinnie was, he was genuinely, you know, annoyed. And, and of course someone like myself would, you know, love that. Right. Well, there, you know there weren't too many people who could annoy him. I'll tell you a real quick story about that is when they started doing the TNT tapings, Tuesday Night Titans, they did them in a suburb of Baltimore called Owings Mills, Maryland. And they started having um, a little studio audience. And of course, being a huge fan, I was in that studio audience several times. And one, uh, on one episode, Captain Lou was there. And I think Lou might have even been, this might have been after the Cindy Lauper stuff. And he, was, uh, he had turned babyface. And uh, he was entertaining the crowd. You know, there was a small audience, but, you know, during breaks, Lou would come and start telling these, you know, like bad jokes. And he had everybody in stitches. And I, I looked back and saw Vince Jr.'s face. And um, let's just say he did not look pleased. Like he did look very annoyed that Lou was kind of holding court and telling these jokes. And um, yeah, he, he seemed more annoyed than amused. So, and that was obviously many years later when, you know, Vince, Vince Jr. is running the company at this point. So, uh, but yeah, that definitely came across on TV back when Vince Jr. was the announcer and Lou would go into his, you know, cut his sometimes nonsensical promos and, uh, you know, have his belly hanging out. And just, yeah, you, the, the looks on uh, Vince's face were priceless. But I want to ask you about another guy 
Uh, this will be the last one. Like I said, I could ask you so many, but Mr. Fuji was known as one of the <laughs> biggest ribbers of all time and not necessarily good natured. Oh, wasn't that funny? Mr. Fuji played a little joke on me that they were very mean spirited sometimes ribs. Were you ever the victim of a Mr. Fuji rib? Yes. Um, um, other than little bits of business in the ring, um, I always had a good relationship with the wrestlers. Um, they wouldn't, except for Fuji, they would never mess with me. Um, and I think that came about because they saw that I respected them and I respected the sport. Um, so they returned the respect. I don't know where Fuji would get all of these, um, their um, gym rocks. Um, the, you know, the kind that had combination, combination gym, gym locks. Sure. Um, I think he probably stole them at, like when we would go to um, high school gyms or college gymnasiums, if he saw a box of them, he'd probably like steal them. So he had a huge never ending supply of these things. <laughs> we were at the, uh, before I was announcing TV in Hamburg, I was announcing TV for them in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia arena. And I was rarely in the, in the dressing room because I was, you know, in center stage, um, center ring all the time. It was just in between. I would just change my tie and jacket and then I would get a new lineup and run back out to the ring. Um, so we had plenty of time to play with my personal belongings and he took my garment bag and he locked the strap of my garment bag around um, a, a bright yellow metal folding chair. And I was lucky because he would, he would lock people's personal belongings to like pipes. And like, so you couldn't leave. I, I actually, I was teaching school, so I had to get out of there that night. So I was walking down the streets of Philly with a bright yellow metal folding chair um, <laughs> over my shoulder. And I brought it to school the next day and I sent a, one of my students down to the shop to get it, you know, cut off. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was um, the, the only other interaction that I had with personal interaction I had with Fuji was um, he was trying, and this has nothing to do with him being devious. Um, he was trying to decide whether or not his daughter um, should have piano lessons. And I don't even know how he knew that I had played piano. And he was asking me about, you know, piano lessons and what I would recommend and how to find a teacher and that kind of thing. But, you know, generally he, uh, that was the one and only time that I was the, you know, the victim of his, of his pranks. And luckily, it, you know, it was, you know, it was pretty harmless. I was going to say, all things considered, it sounds like you got off pretty lucky. I did. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, like I said, I, man, I could ask you about these old, old timers. You know, we could spend three hours or more doing that. But we're going to take our first break. We do have plenty more to talk about, though, with Gary Michael Capetta. It's been fun play wrestling with y'all. But we got something even better. 
Ah! Honor Nation, it's the ROH Wrestling Honor Pals, the body slamming, drop kicking way to keep the fun going. We need some tougher competition. El Puro Buckle! Jay Trevor! She's the new Honor Pals champion. ROH Wrestling Honor Pals. Bring home your favorite star at shophonor.com. All right, back on the ROH Strong Podcast with Gary Michael Capetta. Gary, where did the uh, world's most dangerous announcer moniker came from? I, that started when you were in, in was it NWA or WCW? Um, WCW, um, Jim Cornette gave me that name uh, while he was on commentary. Um, I guess it was just funny because, you know, I'm the antithesis of danger when you look at me. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm just Mr. Regular Guy, um, which I think was one of the appeals um, of me in the very beginning being a ring announcer, that and being short. So I made everybody else look bigger. I made everyone else look crazier. Um, and it also, um, it also encouraged a connection that I always had with the audience. Like I was Mr. Everyman. Right. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it was from... Um, Dick the Bruiser was the world's most dangerous uh, wrestler. And um, David Letterman grew up in Indianapolis, and he was a big wrestling fan. And he used to call his band the world's most dangerous fan. And that, so it all has a, like a wrestling um, background. And yeah, it was from uh, Jim Cornette calling me that once, and it, it stuck. Okay. Well, you had been with uh, the WWF for, I guess, maybe, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe about 10 years or so, and you had become, your voice had become, you know, so synonymous. I guess years later, a lot of people, they think of Howard Finkel as, you know, synonymous with the WWF shows, but at that time, like I said, it was you, it was Joe McHugh. Uh, what were the circumstances of, of your leaving? I mean, if, if you can discuss, and um, because you ended up, uh, right, I, I think right away, right with um, with the NWA and the AWA, pretty much simultaneously. Is, is that right? Yeah, I'm the only um, individual who ever announced for the WWF, AWA, and NWA all at the same time. Um, it was you know my transition. Um, at the time, uh, Vinny had um, infiltrated other territories. Um, he was, you know, stamping out the boundaries between territories. And Vern Gagne and Jim Crockett got together and they formed Pro Wrestling USA. And they brought their combined promotions into the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Um, before they hit the Meadowlands, they played some of the New York boroughs and North Jersey towns, like small shows. And I was um, um, at that time, and those local promoters, they worked with local promoters who used to be with the WWF. And the WWF didn't need them anymore because they were going national. So they had hooked up with um, people, personnel who had booked like national music acts and had relationships with large buildings from coast to coast. So they didn't need the local promoter in Staten Island or Brooklyn or Yonkers. They didn't need them anymore. So when Pro Wrestling USA came into the area, they teamed up with these local promoters who had local media contacts. And as soon as 
Um, and they were told, you know, you get your local personnel. And one of that, uh, one of those people was the ring announcer. So they called me and, um, and I went and I did them. Um, and I was announcing at the Meadowlands Arena every other week, one time for WWF, two weeks later for AWA and NWA, and then back and forth. <clears throat> and at the time, Vern Gagne was starting a new wrestling show for the first time on a legit sports network, ESPN, which was coming out of um, Atlantic City. And they asked me if um, I would be the ring announcer. So going back to the, the Meadowlands, I knew that one of, uh, one of the things that made me valuable was my relationship with the fans. And the fans trusted what I told them. No matter what kind of a lie I told them, whatever shilling I did, they believed me. And it was you know, because of how they perceived me and how I presented it. And I felt that it would be disingenuous, because it was disingenuous, to go every other week to the same arena and say this is the best wrestling in the world. So I had to make a choice. And I, I knew Vinny didn't like me, so I knew I didn't have a future with the WWF. On the other hand, I had this opportunity to do a national broadcast on a legit sports network. So I just simply, I wasn't fired and I didn't quit. I just stopped going. Okay. And, um, you know, and worked with um, the AWA and the NWA after that. And shortly after that, I started doing Baltimore every month for uh, Jim Crockett. Right. I remember that very well. The Pro Wrestling USA was one of those ideas that, um, man, it would have been great if it could have worked. I've talked to Gary Juster about it many times. We, Gary's been on the show to talk about it. It seemed like a great idea because you had Vince Jr. expanding, going into everyone else's territory, and you had Crockett and Ganya, who were both still, you know, do the AWA and Crockett Promotions doing well. Crockett Promotions maybe doing a little better. Uh, but, you know, they, they decided let's, let's work together. Let's pool our resources because with the two of us, you know, we'll have a, a better roster than what WWF can do. And, and we'll, we'll promote in the Northeast. You know, he wants to come into our territories. Well, we'll, we'll promote and go up against him. But ultimately, I guess, and maybe not surprisingly, whenever these joint ventures happen, it seems like it's just a matter of time before, whether it's egos or clash of personalities, whatever it is, they always seem to not work in the long run. Uh, when you were part of that, did you think this was something that really had a chance to work and could hold off WWF just kind of taking over the business? Or did you sense, eh, Ganya and Crockett, this is never going to last? I never, I never uh, was privy to the, the battle of the egos <clears throat> between the two. And to tell you the truth, like I never, um, I wasn't really interested. E even though I was on the inside, I wasn't interested in all the inside stories. So I never thought about things long term as far as a promotion. I thought of things long-term as far as my career. Um, and, and the other, what you stated is the core reason why Pro Wrestling USA did not work, the battle of the egos 
between Crockett and Gagne. But Vince also had uh, some of the better buildings tied up. Yeah. And they couldn't, in major markets, they couldn't, in the beginning, get into like larger arenas. Baltimore was one of the few that stood up to Vinny because Vinny essentially said to them, if you have these other guys in your building, I will not come back. And they said goodbye because they were doing such good business with the Crockett's. Yep. And for a considerable amount of time, WWF was not at the Baltimore arena. I mean, they played the cap center. That was as close as they got. Um, I'm not sure how they got in the Meadowlands. It took us a while to get into the Boston Gardens. They never got into, um, as far as I know, they never got into the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. They never got into the Spectrum. They never got into Madison Square Garden. Um, so that was a that was another uh, problem that they had. Um, but Gary Jester was, um, you know, um, if 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 I were to think today of today's personnel of Ring of Honor. I think Gary Jester is the unsung hero. He put up with so much garbage. And remember, he's, he's, he was battling Vinny and the WWF, WWE for decades and decades yeah. and, and losing, um, which is why when um, the Madison Square Garden show happened a couple years ago um, with the Ring of Honor, I was so happy for him um, because they finally got the main building. When I was with WCW, we played the smaller arena as part of the uh, Madison Square Garden complex, but never the main stage. And uh, Gary Jester is uh, one of my favorite people. He, he and I travel together um, often when we both work for WCW. Um, yeah, he's, he's top-notch. Yeah, you'll get no argument, I think, from me or anybody at Ring of Honor. Gary, the uh, director of operations for us at Ring of Honor. And um, again, for me, a Baltimore guy, you know, um, first I ever came across Gary, I was a teenager, and he was promoting. And I loved Gary right before I even knew him because he was bringing these stars of the NWA and the AWA that I, you know, could see on cable TV or see pictures in magazines. But now they were coming to my arena every month where I, you know, I never dreamed that that was possible. Uh, and then I got to know Gary, you know, on a personal level uh, a little bit later. But Gary, I guess, really was the first one uh, with Pro Wrestling USA. Actually, you know, it was before that. He was promoting with Georgia Championship Wrestling and came into Baltimore and, um, and immediately started doing good business. And, uh, you know, for a while, once WWF started deciding to come back to Baltimore, Baltimore was supporting both promotions. Uh, the NWA and the WWF were getting, were getting big crowds. Um, so, and that, man, what a, what a time to be a wrestling fan, especially in Baltimore, because Baltimore was kind of this battleground, which the book Battleground Baltimore was, was really all, you know, a lot of the, that's what it was about, was uh, the two biggest promotions coming in, and, and, um, and Baltimore was really unique at that time. Uh, and then, of course, it spread into other areas. You mentioned New Jersey and, and other places. But I think Baltimore was really the first uh, battleground there between the two promotions that would go to war for the next how many ever, how many ever years, you know, a decade plus. Uh, but, yeah, certainly, Gary, uh, a big, big part of that. 
Another uh, another top guy, top notch guy with um, uh, Ring of Honor, Carrie Silken. Yes. Um, last weekend, I, uh, I I did a convention in at the Hamburg Fieldhouse where we used to tape the TV, and, Ca- and Carrie always comes by and says hello. And I had on display some old WWWF um, posters, the uh, you know the display the the old cardboard red and white posters that you'd see in your barbershop window yep and he maybe someone in the uh the the ring of honor sphere can answer this question for me because i asked him and i didn't get a satisfactory answer he went ballistic when he looked at one of my posters because they had listed the undercard and one of the wrestlers that was listed was a, a guy by the little well, like not well known, Lee Wong, yeah. Lee Wong from Hong Kong. Yeah, I remember that name. And <laughs> every poster that has Lee Wong's name on it, Carrie has to have. <laughs> so he picked up that poster from me, and I said to him, "What is the fascination with Lee Wong? Like I don't get it." And he just said, "Because he was so bad." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anyone out there has a better explanation as to Carrie Sulkin's fascination with Lee Wong, um, Lee Wong used to come to the, he used to wrestle barefoot, and he used to come to the ring in flip-flops. And I'm thinking, um, <laughs> you know, he was like the, the forerunner of, um, of Riddle. <laughs> what? Very, very different level, and he never kicked his flip-flops off the same way. But for some reason, Carrie Silken, who's a, another sweetheart of a guy, um, he's just fascinated, fascinated with the guy. Well, he's there a lot to unlock in that, in that conversation there. <laughs> but yes, let, first, Carrie, uh, again, 100% agree with you. Carrie Silken, salt-to-the-earth guy. Um, I've gotten to know Carrie well the last few years. Um, and it's not hyperbole to say and anyone who knows the history of Ring of Honor knows this, Gary, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There would be no ROH Strong podcast if not for two of the people that we just mentioned, Carrie Silken and Gary Juster. Um, Carrie obviously owned the company, kept it afloat uh, for many years. As you know, He's told this story many times, um, you know, dipped into his own personal savings account to, to keep the company going when it would have made more financial sense for him. To, to fold the company, but he just, he couldn't do it. Um, and then fortuitous that, that Gary Juster uh, eventually was the guy who arranged the meeting uh, between the Sinclair people and Carrie. Jim Cornette was also involved, and that's another guy, had it not been for Cor- uh, Cornette and that um, association. None of us, you know, none of us, Ring of Honor wouldn't exist today. So certainly Carrie and Gary, uh, both uh, very revered, uh, in Ring of Honor circles, as they should be, because it, again, it's not hyperbole. There would be no Ring of Honor uh, without either of them. But, That's right. But you mentioned the post. I know. I know. Kerry Silken. He um, he collects those old posters. And man, that is a that is a throwback. To, again, uh, being an older guy like myself, I remember those posters very very well. They'd be on display wherever, like you said, maybe a barber shop or you know, whatever, a convenience store, you would see those things. And by and large, they would always, I always wondered, like, 
was there no like uh, I guess there was no um fact checker or anything like because there would always be names misspelled horribly na- names would be butchered sometimes on these posters it's like how can you not get these names right uh, I, you know I think that was that was the result of um, the printer never got anything in writing I think it was all done over the phone ah, and so what he heard is what he, <laughs> he never either he never thought to ask how do you spell that or thought he knew how to spell that. Right. Uh, but let's see. Let, what was the other? Th- oh, Lee Wong. Yeah, I remember. I can remember those guys. You know, I guess back then we called them preliminary wrestlers. I had never heard the term jobber until much later or enhancement talent. We called them preliminary guys back then. And, um, yeah, you know, names like uh, Steve King come to mind. Uh, Billy Berger. Frank Masters. I mean, I don't know if I'm, you know, bringing back some memories with some of these names, but um, yeah, Lee Wong, even even among the enhancement talent or the preliminary guys, was a guy who seemed more um, less, or should I say, less, less physically imposing, less of a physical threat than even these other guys who may get in a punch or something here and there, a little very minor hope spot. Lee Wong was just pretty much a punching bag. I think I remember Stan the Man Stasiak giving him the heart punch. And, man, Lee Wong was like he was dead after that. So, um, yeah, but I guess that's just one of those names that stick out, too. You know, Lee Wong, it was, an, it was a different name. Uh, he wrestled barefoot, like you said. But, yeah, I mean, he was just – he would uh, – I don't know that he ever got in an offensive maneuver in his whole career. I, I don't know. I, I, did, I did ask Carrie last week. His answer just didn't satisfy me, you know, because he's so bad. He said, yeah, he said sometimes he was introduced from like Lee Wong from Hong Kong, Lee Wong from Chinatown. Lee Wong's like, slow down, Carrie, just like relax. Well, this, this brings me to another, another uh, question. So, again, back in the day, you talked about, you know, the, the, the faces in one locker room, the heels in the other. What about this core of enhancement talent? who I guess could sort of go either way. A lot of them, um, did they have, was there like an enhancement talent locker room as well? Or did they kind of mingle in with the, with the stars? No, they were, um, they were booked as good guys and bad guys. Okay. But some, some, it seemed to be just whatever they needed that week. Some were, yeah, I guess some were, um, like devious, you know, so, uh, like Joe Turco. So Joe Turco would be booked against Ivan Putsky. Um, you know, against Tony Gurria, he would never be a face. No, not, not Johnny Rods was never a face. Uh, right. Johnny yeah. Rods was in Hamburg last weekend, too. Oh, wow. Davey O'Hannon was there. <laughs> Davey O'Hannon. Wow. Man, is bringing back so many memories. And a lot of these guys, like a guy like Davey O'Hannon was, um, like, he would be a, a, a star, I guess, in other territories. He would be sort of like, uh, and Johnny Rods was one, S.D. Jones was one. They were like preliminary guys, but not your. They were like the high end. They would, they would, they would still, you know, do the honors on TV. But if you would go to the monthly show at, say, the Baltimore Civic Center, Johnny Rods would would beat up a Lee Wong or a Steve King, some of these guys. So Johnny Rods was a star in other places. He just he never really got that push in uh, in the WWF for whatever reason. I don't. I guess he was valuable in that he was a good hand. Uh, and that he could put like if you if you were a babyface and you beat Johnny Rods, you were beating somebody that was maybe you know a couple notches higher than beating Lee Wong or some of these other and, guys. 
And there were some guys that on their first run were, uh, were job guys and then were brought back and became superstars. Sure. Um, I remember introducing Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Yep. Uh, it, it was just Jim Duggan from Glens Falls, New York. Um, Bret Hart had a, a run in the WWF before he was you know, brought back in you know, the Hart Foundation. Kurt Henning, when he was really young. Eddie Gilbert. Um, Eddie Gilbert. But Eddie Gilbert was never brought back as super oh, over. That's true. So, yeah. So, I mean, that was the pattern, um, you, know, for, you know, for those guys. Let me move on, though, to, um, to your days in, in WCW. Was this the first time in your career that you actually were a contracted employee? Yes. And, um, go ahead. Um, I, I was doing um, piecemeal work for both uh, the NWA and AWA. I was doing uh, Clash of, the Clash of Champions. I was doing um, NWA pay-per-views. And I was doing AWA pay-per-views. And um, I think it was December 1988, Clash of Champions. No, Clash, oh boy, what was it called? It was in Chicago for AWA. Um, Was it Super Clash? Super Clash. And um, so Gary Jester and I were in the car and driving this was after that so this would have been like two two three months later um we're in the car we're driving up to uh connecticut um together to do um an nwa show and uh he said i have a message for you from jim hurd who was recently became the executive vice president of wcw the boss the boss of wcw and he says to me, he says, he doesn't want you to do the AWA pay-per-views anymore because you're our ring announcer. And it's confusing as far as branding. So I said to him, um, well, I don't, first, I don't understand why he's sending a message. Why didn't he just call me? Second, I'm not under contract with him. And I don't think he has any sway in telling me I need to sit home when I have a, an offer to do, you know, other work. So if he wants to have me exclusively, he needs to sign me exclusively and pay me exclusively. And that's how that came about. Okay. Now, because I, I didn't back down. I said, no, like, I'm not going to stop doing other, you know, I'm not going to turn down other opportunities right. because he's not guaranteeing work for me he's calling me all the time but he's not guaranteeing work for me yeah well absolutely that was definitely smart on your part now once you were uh contracted in addition to the ring announcing were you doing other things behind the scenes um for a short time i was um selling sponsorships to live events on the local level um for a short time i was uh producing the um, interview segments to promote local shows. And I was also the Spanish commentary voice. I would go into the studio and voice over our weekly show in Spanish for the Latin markets. All right, so you, did, you were wearing several hats at that point. So um, 
they were they were uh, getting their money's worth, I suppose. Yeah, at different times. You know, at different times over the six years I was with them. Okay. Um, not necessarily all at the same time, but um, yeah, I used to. At 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 that point, I loved touring, and I loved going to Europe with them. I just, uh, you know, I just enjoyed it. But there were times when I was. Um, I don't know. I but I, I felt I could do more. I could contribute more. Mm-hmm. And I used to um, needle Jim Hurd, and he would come up with these things for me to do. Okay. All right. Well, Gary, we're going to take our uh, second break here. Uh, still more to talk about. We're going to get to the Ring of Honor years. We're going to take this break and uh, come back with Gary right after this. Want to hear post-match interviews from tonight's competitors? Want to see exclusive brand new matches? Want to learn about breaking news before anyone else? Week by Week is the perfect companion to everything that happens on ROH TV. It premieres every single Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the official ROH YouTube page. That's youtube.com slash ring of honor. Stay informed on the best wrestling on the planet. I'll see you there. All right, we're back on the ROH Strong Podcast, having an absolutely uh, fantastic conversation with Gary Michael Capetta. I'm getting to uh, live my childhood, talk about the old days, but let's talk about uh, Ring of Honor, because this is the Ring of Honor Podcast. So I guess after you left WCW, was there a period there where you were not involved in the business at all? Because you came to Ring of Honor, what, maybe 2003? When I left WCW, I spent two years um, writing my book, Body Slams. Okay. Um, I wasn't going to any, you know, workplace. That was my work. Um, and I kept on hearing about this. Uh, you know, Ring of Honor had, a, had a, a really good buzz. And I was curious about it. During that time, I was also, now this would have been uh, late 90s, mid to late 90s. I got a call from Paul Heyman and uh, he wanted me to come in and work for ECW and um, everything I had heard about ECW was just not my cup of tea. And uh, cause you know, the things you would hear would be the ultra violent guys jumping out of balconies and so forth. So I had never seen one of their shows, but I was just, you know, whether it was correct or mistaken, I just had no interest. And he didn't want to bring me in as a ring announcer. He wanted to bring me in as a commentator. And I just said, I said to him, Paul, I said, your fans, like, they wouldn't put up with that. Like, I'm the anti, my, my persona is the anti-ECW. And, and I would think that you would want a commentator that the people could warm up to. <laughs> I said, now, if you brought me in with Joey Styles. And I was anti-ECW, and that was out there, and I, you know, more or less would be a heel commentator. That would make sense. Right. So, uh, but, but Ring of Honor had a buzz, and uh, they were coming to Philadelphia. And um, I had a, a friend who had helped me on my, I had, a, I had a stage show back then, too. So he had helped me with the video uh, that I would show at my stage shows. And he and I, I bought a couple tickets and he and I went and I was blown away by Ring of Honor. It was, 
um, it, it, I just thought it was great. And so I um, called Gabe Sapowski, who was the booker at the time, and I congratulated him on what he was doing. Not that I understood all the angles or whatever. It was just the first time I had seen it. But the action was, and, and the reaction from the crowd um, sort of brought me back a bit um, to, to like an instantaneous kind of um, explosive reaction to what was going on that comes from a fan's heart and not their head. Um, so, um, I, so I said to him, if there's any way that I can help, please don't hesitate to call me. Um, there's only one thing that I would not consider doing, and that is ring announcing. I've, I've done my ring announcing, and it, it, it was fine, but I'm looking to do different things. And I don't need to be in front of the camera if there's any way that I can help backstage. And, and a few weeks later, he called me back. And um, I don't think they were doing, I could be mistaken, but I don't think they had a backstage uh, interviewer. Um, and he asked me about doing that. And so I said, sure, that sounds, sounds good to me. And um, yeah, I worked with them with Ring of Honor for a few years. Now, had you had any prior experience as far as being an interviewer to that point? No. Okay. Well, I can understand that after 20 plus years or whatever of ring announcing, um, a new challenge for you. So it must've been something that you were, you were looking forward to doing. Yeah. Every um, once in a while I would, you know, I would do that in center ring mm-hmm. for the different promotions. Um, you know, but it was just more or less a pitch line, but Gabe, you know, he equipped me with everything that I needed to know. Um, you know, since I wasn't, uh, especially in the beginning when I started working with them, I wasn't, um, privy to the intricacies of their storylines. What memories do you have? Is there, are there any specific memories from your ROH days that stick out? I guess some guys that, are, that were there then that are still with us are, are the Briscoes and, and Jay Lethal. Briscoe's there for uh, both of those guys almost from uh, – well, the Briscoes were there day one, the very first show. Jay came, I guess, a little bit later. But any, any uh, memories of any of those shows or experiences that kind of come to mind? Um, I just enjoyed being around those guys. I mean, when you look at the roster, um, and where that talent has come today, you know, not just the Briscoes and Jay Lethal, but I mentioned AJ Styles and, uh, Brian Danielson, Christopher Daniels, CM Punk, Cole Cabana, Samoa Joe, Frankie Kazarian, Jack Evans. I mean, they were all, you know, they were all there at the same time. And I know I'm forgetting some. Um, I, you know, I always liked the, the pure championship contests. Um, and even today when I go to an indie show, um, for instance, before signing with Ring of Honor, um, I was at an indie show and I saw Tracy Williams and Jonathan Gresham. And to sit there at a small show and watch these guys put on a wrestling clinic and to observe the fans responding to what they're seeing tells me that it's still possible to capture the imagination of fans without 
high spot after high spot after high spot. It takes it takes work and a little time to um, to build that match. It takes patience. I mean, it it takes incredible skill. Um, I mean, I was so blown away when I saw the first time I saw Tracy Williams and Jonathan Gresham that I I messaged them um, just to congratulate them and to thank them because it's one of the thrills that I have today when I go to an indie show and I see a technical match and I watch how the fans respond. Um, it never fails. It never fails to work when it's done correctly. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and the two guys you mentioned, uh, two of the absolute best at it, Jonathan Gresham and Tracy Williams, uh, no surprise when we, we brought back the pure title and held the tournament, it came down to in the finals, Jonathan Gresham uh, defeating Tracy Williams. And of course, now they are part of a group together, the foundation, along with Jay Lethal and a guy I believe you know pretty well, Rhett Titus. Yes. When, you know, when Rhett um, was looking to become a wrestler, he got in touch with me and um, we live in the same county. And um, he came over to my house. And honestly, I, I'm like, I don't have a great memory of the specifics of our conversation. And I don't know how much I helped him. Um, but, you know, sometimes just listening to somebody that's hungry and that wants to, um, wants to fulfill a dream, you know, someone that's, established like I was at the time um, is enough. Um, he probably could tell you more about, you know, what we, what we talked about than, than I remember. But um, whenever I see him now, um, you know, he's just one of the most um, impressive and um, in the ring, out of the ring, and, you know, respectful kind of guys. Um, I'm, I'm very, very thrilled for all the success that uh, Red Titus has had in Ring of Honor. He deserves every bit of it. Yeah, Red is a guy who uh, really put his nose to the grindstone, kept working. You know, he had his, his high moments uh, back in the day. He and Kenny King, the All Night Express, becoming the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Champions. And Kenny left right after that, kind of left Red high and dry in Ring of Honor. And... Rhett went through a series of – he went through transitions where he was not as high up on the card, but certainly not for a lack of talent, not for a lack of um, perseverance. And now I agree with you. I'm so happy for Rhett's success today. Rhett is as good as – for my money, and, of course, maybe I'm biased because I'm with Ring of Honor, but I think Rhett is uh, – his comeback story is, is, is really one of the, the most interesting, compelling stories, I think, in wrestling. Of a he didn't guy give up. He didn't give up. He never gave up. Nope. You know, um, and if I, if I, the one thing that I may remember correctly about the time that he came over to my place and we had a chat when he was looking to get into wrestling, I, I sort of remember him as being a skinny kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you just look at him today and you can see that, you know, the dedication and the work in many different ways, you know, that he's put in. And, and yeah, I'm just thrilled for his success. Well, and here's something that'll take you back uh, again to the old days. Rhett's finisher, uh, one of them, or basically I guess it's become his main finisher these days, is a drop kick. 
because Rhett throws one of the most beautiful drop kicks I've ever seen, and he wins with it. Now, that could happen back in the 70s, um, but then for the longest time, a drop kick was just, you know, people would yawn at a drop kick, right? That's just another transitional move. Nobody wins with a drop kick. Rhett has gotten the drop kick over as a finisher, and, um, and it's accepted. So, again, I think that's a – you know, eventually, I guess my, this is my long-winded way of saying the cream rises to the top eventually, even though that's a cliche. I think it's true, and a guy like Rhett is just too good not to eventually rise back to the top. But that's very cool that um, I, I'd never heard that story before. That, that Rhett had reached out to you uh, and that you played a part in his, in his career. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, we're going to take our final break. And then when we come back, I don't know if this is going to honor Gary or embarrass him or maybe just embarrass myself. But uh, we're going to maybe, I'll see if maybe I can do a little Gary Michael Capetta impersonation. Let's roll, America. Roll up your sleeves to give blood. You can help save lives of patients that depend on blood every single day. Ring of Honor Wrestling has once again teamed up with American Red Cross for Sinclair Cares Roll Up Your Sleeves. Make an appointment today to donate blood. Your donation will help save lives and impact countless more. Go to SinclairCares.com to schedule your appointment now. All right, we are back on the RH Strong Podcast. My guest is Gary Michael Capetta. Gary, this has been an awesome conversation. And as I've told you before, I could sit down and talk to you for hours and hours about the old days and uh, you know all the places you've been and people you've met, things that you've done. But I did start off saying um, you had a very distinctive voice, very distinctive style. I sort of memorized growing up how you would start off every episode of, um, of all-star wrestling. Would it, uh, would it bother you if I, <clears throat> if I tried my Gary Michael Capetta impression? I think you've clarified it, but, um, it's important to, uh, uh, <laughs> if you really want to be challenged to state up front, which part of my career, oh. like I sounded differently in WWF than I did in WCW, for instance. That's true. I'm going to try Gary Michael Capetta classic. I'm talking 1974, 75 era. Hamburg, PA, all-star. Okay, so it's the more more toned down, I think. Even though I, I always boomed. But, but when I started ringing ass and we didn't have microphones, <laughs> so I had to boom. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to try. Look, I'm not, uh, boy, this is another dated reference. I'm not Rich Little, and, and no one listening uh, probably under the age of 30 is going to understand who the hell Rich Little is. Uh, I'm not going to say this is the greatest, but it comes from a place of love. Okay? That's, okay. that's all I'll say. I'll try to get the essence if I don't nail the voice exactly. Okay. Greetings, wrestling fans, and welcome to another action-packed card of All-Star Wrestling, promoted by Phil Zacco. These matches are sanctioned and supervised by the State Athletic Commission. The referees assigned by the State Athletic Commission, Dick Worley, Gilberto Roman, John Stanley. And I'm your ring announcer for All-Star Wrestling, Gary Michael Capetta. And I left out all the parts about the commissioner and the chief deputies. I figured we'd just get to it. Michael. That was good. That was good. That that's yeah. It was a more nasally style. Yeah. Uh, 
it was not out as out there and it was i think it was just because of you know insecurities of you know my insecurities so uh yeah that was good ah, that was well thank you gary i appreciate that i was i was well that was a thrill for me to get to do that that for you I, again i hope i didn't embarrass you <laughs> but you know here, here's another one uh because joe McHugh, as i said the complete opposite uh, I'll throw a little Joe McHugh at you. And, and people who don't know, they can see how different he was. <clears throat> uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Championship Wrestling promoted by Phil Zacco, supervised by the State Athletic Commission, the doctor in attendance at ringside, Dr. George Zohadian, and uh, my name is Joe McHugh. That well, was good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how, how um, true it is, but I had heard that Joe's style came from um, that perhaps he was like a, um, a host during like vaudeville shows. Oh, wow. And, um, and maybe carnivals. I'm not sure about that, but that that's where his, his style comes from. My, my style came from fear. <laughs> wow that's you know I, i'd love to hear like what joe McHugh was really like like there's there's a guy that like i've never heard any stories or anything like did he, did he go hang out and, and drink beers with the boys or like you know i've never heard a joe McHugh story and i guess since you, your paths rarely crossed you, you probably don't have any yeah i don't think he was uh i don't think he he socialized in that way um i kind of remember I think his, I don't even know that he was driving at the time because I, I believe that his daughter used to drop him off and pick him up at the end of the night. And one of the reasons that he went from Hamburg to Allentown, we switched programs when we stopped working in Philly. Okay. And I took over his Hamburg announcing and he moved to Allentown, which was the Philadelphia um, show because he lived in Allentown. So it was easier to transport him, you know, in his hometown. Sure. So I don't think he, he hung out too much at the, at the Abraham Lincoln um, Hotel. Right. Well, it's because, you know, you would hear stories about, again, I, I discovered Gordon Soley later. <clears throat> I got cable where I lived, I guess in the early 80s when I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, Gordon Soley, the Walter Cronkite, the, the dean of professional wrestling announcers. And then later on, you hear these stories about, you know, Gordon uh, was a, a famous drinker and, and hung out with the boys and stuff like that. So and that's why I kind of wondered, did, did, did Joe McHugh have this like secret life of, of going on the road and hanging with the boys and Lou Albano and, uh, you know, Strongbow or whatever that we, we never heard about. So maybe I would get frustrated. Um during my years with uh, WCW, Gordon was the guy that I would go to, to, uh, to bellyache. <laughs> he, he would listen to me. And um, I think he also, um, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, Gordon lived, uh, I was, I, I had been to Gordon's home in, in the Tampa area, in Tampa. And he lived on Gordon Surly Lane. Oh, they, they, they renamed the street for him. <laughs> That's very cool. I think he's the one that educated me about 
um, um, airline frequent flyer hospitality rooms, and <laughs> you know where you get free booze. Yeah. And and stock up on those little bottles. Yeah, he. I think he educated me <laughs> with that. <laughs> I want to ask you about one more ring announcer, uh, if you'll indulge me. Back in in Baltimore, we had our own ring announcer in the in the you know early to mid seventies as well. He was an elderly gentleman. I don't think I've oh. ever heard his name. Oh. Mentioned. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I certainly do. What was his I, name? I've never heard his name mentioned. I have no idea. Okay. But um, uh, here's here's why I know um, of that uh, that man. He. Um, Gary Jester had wanted me to become the ring announcer there for NWA. And he, being the, the sweetheart that he is, he just didn't have, he just couldn't fire the guy. Yeah. He, he couldn't tell him no more. Until one night <laughs> in Baltimore, and I was there, and I'm not sure... I guess they brought me in to be a guest announcer for, you know, a match maybe because I remember sitting in um, the locker room and the, and the sound was piped backstage and it was a pro wrestling USA show. Bob Backlund was wrestling for the AWA at the time. And that ring announcer introduced him as the howdy duty of pro wrestling. Oh my God. Not realizing what a slur that was, <laughs> especially to Bob Backlund. Of course. Bob Backlund, who was another um, very uh, genteel kind of gentleman, except that one night when I saw him go off on that ring announcer, and that gave um, Gary, the opportunity to, uh, you know, to fit him, uh, to, to bid him a farewell and bring me in. I can't believe he did that. He, I don't know whether he was set up or he had heard it and thought that it was a complimentary thing because he would have, you know, I don't know the guy, but I'm sure that he wouldn't do anything to jeopardize his position. Yeah. We wouldn't think that that's crazy. I know I have a lot of crazy stories, Kevin. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, well, hey, you've written a book. There could be a volume, too. It, it, well, let me ask you that. What, what's next for you? Because you have written, you've done your autobiography. You've done uh, various versions of a stage show. I caught your uh, multimedia show in Baltimore a few years ago, maybe, maybe three years ago. I think that, that's probably right, um, which I recommend it to anybody if they ever get a chance, if you do those again. So what is next? Uh, do you plan on going back on the road or like what's, what's next for you? Um, well, I'm just beginning to um, piece together things now that we're coming out, hopefully of the pandemic. Um, I've got a couple of guest ring announce um, shows um, in a couple of weeks. Um, so I'll, I'll go out and, and, and introduce one match on a, like an indie card. Um, I've been talking with a company that is a, a, a travel company 
that brings in um, fans from Europe and Japan to um, for a multi-day visit to the States built around a major U.S. wrestling, like WrestleMania or SummerSlam um, or an AEW um, Supercard. And they they would bring me in or they bring sort of like an, uh, a good real ambassador, um, talk to the fans, maybe even do my stage show for them. Um, so uh, hopefully there's a future there. I would, you know, that sounds like something fun. And then eventually going over to the UK and, and doing my show. Okay. Well, Gary, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, you know, but mostly conventions and guest ring announce gigs is probably how I'm going to, and my Facebook page is how I'm, you know, pretty much going to keep myself busy. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's give people the information again, where they can uh, find you on Facebook and, and Twitter. Well, Twitter is simply Gary Capetta, two P's, two T's. Um, Facebook is my initials, GMC, number four, real. GMC for real. Um, yeah, and, you know, that's, you know, basically where folks can find me online. All right, well, Gary, I, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I can't tell you how much I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. I always do anytime I get the rare opportunity to do so. I want to thank you for giving me uh, so much of your time. Hopefully, we'll see each other somewhere down the line, whether you're doing your you bring your show to Baltimore again, or who knows, maybe at a show, maybe at a Ring of Honor show. You never know. Uh, but again, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. It's been fun. All right. And I want to thank everybody out there for listening and remind you that a new episode of the ROH Strong Podcast drops every Monday morning on ROHWrestling.com and most podcast platforms. Keep it locked into ROHWrestling.com and ROH's social media channels. That's at Ring of Honor on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook.com slash Ring of Honor for news regarding upcoming episodes. Also, for the latest ROH news and views, you can read my column, X-Files, every Friday on ROHWrestling.com. Until next time, this is Kevin X saying stay safe and let's all be ROH strong.